If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. Last week, we began a new series, Establishing a Kingdom, in this narrative book of Old Testament history. If 2 Samuel is unfamiliar to you, you can start at the beginning of your Bible and go about a sixth or a quarter of the way in, pass through the five books of Moses and Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and then, of course, 1 Samuel. And we pick up this morning in the middle of the first chapter. You may recall that I reminded us last week that 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. They were not separated into two. And it is at the end of our passage uh, this morning, really in which that first segment concludes. Concludes with the reign of Saul. And then it begins in chapter 2 with the reign of David. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel chapter 1 beginning at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Oh Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to speak that your spirit has determined your people need. Take not my wisdom or my words, but yours, O oh Lord. Open up your word so that we might be blessed by it. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. In this world, 
none of us escapes being touched by grief. Because of sin, this world is a place of loss. It's a place where that loss weighs down on us. It could be the death of a loved one, or of a pet, or the loss of a job, or of close family moving far away. We know grief over and over again. So we come to this text today with experience, with understanding. But it is a hard text. Why should we be reminded of our grief? David's lament is recorded and taught to us. God himself wants us to learn about grief. He wants us to see that while grief is hard, it can also be good for us. Grief is not something that we should seek out. But we should neither be ashamed of it as well. Grief shows our love, our understanding of loss, and our hope for the future. And so this morning, we will look at David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. And in it, we will find purpose and wisdom for our own grief. The very first thing that I would like us to see from this text this morning is that grief is hard. And that seems like a simple statement, but it is extremely true. You remember how we have gotten to this point. David has been told about Israel's defeat by the Philistines. It is a great loss. Saul and Jonathan are both dead. And David had to deal with the Amalekite, but now the focus is clearly on the loss. This grief of David arises from a tragedy. In verses 11 and 12, David's grief is spontaneous. It is an outburst that cannot be contained. It actually interrupts what we would consider the important part of the story. The fact that David is now king. And that there's an Amalekite that needs to be dealt with. But you see, that David's grief puts all of this on pause. You'll note in verse 12 that they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. So they spent the whole day grieving, giving vent to their emotions, while the Amalekite stands and wonders what reward he will get from David. That's because this is a tragedy. It's, a, first of all, a personal tragedy for David. We lose something if we see David as being the enemy of Saul. As being someone who's glad to be rid of Saul. That is not the case. The truth is that David was not Saul's enemy. Saul may have been David's enemy, but David was not Saul's. David lived in Saul's house. His wife was Saul's daughter. David here was clearly misunderstood. He wanted the conflict to end, but certainly not in this way. And that says nothing about David's relationship with Jonathan. From the very first, 
Jonathan and David were the closest of friends. Right after David kills Goliath and speaks to Saul, the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, reports that as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We could not have imagined closer friends, comrades in arms, leaders of the people. David felt this loss. And he knew it could not be made whole. When we experience a tragedy, it is natural and good to grieve. There is a loss that cannot be made better. There is absolutely nothing wrong with grief. But beyond this being a personal tragedy, this is also a national tragedy. It's more than just the death of an individual. The nation has suffered a defeat. A defeat against a hated enemy who wants to destroy them. The army has fled. Cities and homes have been abandoned and lost to the enemy. And there is a very real fear of future defeat and loss that is looming. Israel has seen this before. When foreign nations have come in and defeated them and taken over their cities and their towns and oppressed them and put them into slavery. David describes this in verse 20. He says, tell it not in Gath, a Philistine capital. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, a famous Philistine city. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. This loss has been made even worse because others are taking delight in it. Perhaps you remember that day many years ago, almost 20 years ago, September 11th, 2001, when there was a report of a plane that had crashed into one of the Twin Towers and the tower was on fire and burning. And perhaps you, like me, when you heard that news, thought, what a horrible accident. How could this happen? Don't they have fail-safes for this? How could the pilot not know there was a building there? And then shortly after that, there was a report of a second plane that hit a second tower. And at that moment, we all knew that this was not an accident, but an attack. And I remember this vividly because there was a third plane as well. And that third plane was flying very near to Cleveland, Ohio. And at that point in time, I was in a high rise in downtown Cleveland. And we wondered, is this plane coming for Cleveland? Are they going to crash into our building? What's going to happen? Well, of course, the plane was headed for the Pentagon and to do more destruction. But what made that day especially painful, even more than all of that, was when you turned on your TV and you saw people in the Middle East dancing in the streets, giving out candy to children like it was a birthday party, acting as if this was the best thing that had ever happened in the history of their life. 
And here we are dealing with a tragedy of death, not knowing if loved ones are lost, not knowing the extent of the destruction, not knowing if there would be further attacks. And here are these people celebrating. It makes the grief even worse. To use an analogy, it's not just being stabbed. It's then the knife being turned. It's even worse for David. Because the celebration is also about the Philistines' God, so-called. You see, the Philistines weren't just trash-talking about their army, they were trash-talking about the fact that the God of Israel could not win, was not powerful, and that their God, Dagon, was the powerful God. Let me remind you, this is the same so-called God that could not keep a statue upright when God attacked him in 1 Samuel. Where do David and Israel go from here? Well, in verse 17, we see David's grief shift. It goes from the momentary and overwhelming to an abiding and thoughtful grief. He composes a lament, a lamentation, which is a formal song of grief. It's designed to be reflective. It's not less sorrowful than the grief earlier in verses 11 and 12, but it is more structured. And there is a lesson here for us. David did not want to get over his grief. He didn't encourage Israel to get past it and to forget the pain. In fact, David does the exact opposite. He memorializes it in a way to be remembered. He composes this lament with the design that it be taught to the people. That the army would memorize it. That this would be a song that they would sing. They would remember. It is a song to be remembered. Something that's missing in our text in verse 18. Perhaps you have a footnote. And he said, it should be taught. There's Hebrew behind the word it there. The words, the bow. And people wonder what the bow is doing in this verse. And I think what it's doing in this verse is, that's the title of this lament. So a young person would say, Dad, sing us the bow. I think it's David's way of honoring Jonathan. His weapon was the bow. And this lament was something meant to be studied, remembered, repeated. It was memorialized in a book, the book of Jashar. Now, we don't know this book, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a real book. There are other references to other deeds put down in this book. It was a book of memorializing the warfare of the Israelites, their great victories and their great defeats. Grief is not easily set aside. The worst anguish may dull, but it's replaced by an ongoing pain. I had the occasion a few years ago where my arm, my shoulder was in such pain, I couldn't raise it higher than, a little bit lower than my shoulder. And I made the mistake one day of, of trying to mow the lawn and I pulled the starter cord, not realizing that, and I almost passed out on the driveway. The pain was so intense. 
Well, thankfully, I found a good orthopedic surgeon that went in and cleaned up my shoulder, and now I'm glad to report I can raise my hands up high. That shooting pain's no longer there. But do you know what? My shoulder's never going to be the same. It always hurts. The pain isn't such to stop me from doing things. But it's always there. It nags. It reminds me. I can still live life. I don't need to be morose. I don't need to say, oh, life isn't worth living because I can't use my arm the way I would like to. I wish I could be free from this pain. But I'm always reminded about it. And that's what grief is like. We go on and we live. But we can't pretend as if it's never happened, as if it goes away. We need to be able to express our grief in a way that is real and honest. We shouldn't expect miraculous healing in short order. Grief is hard, and it doesn't help us to pretend otherwise. But secondly, when we understand the nature of grief, we can see how grief helps us. And so the second thing I'd like us to see from our text is that grief gives us an opportunity to remember. Just because grief is hard and painful does not mean that we can't learn from it. David knows that this loss is the result of Israel's sin. History had taught him that. Not even the ark could save Israel when she and her leaders were sinning. Experience had taught him this. He had defeated Goliath, not through his own strength, but by faith. He came upon Goliath and he said, Who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he told Goliath that he would be victorious because the battle is the Lord. So David wants God's people to remember their sin and their shame so that they will be motivated in the future. And so he tells them in verse 19 that the mighty have fallen. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. He reminds them that their enemies are rejoicing in verse 20. And he tells them that he wants a permanent reminder of this event. He says... You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. He wants it to be a barren land. He wants anyone who looks upon Gilboa to remember that as a place of sin and shame and loss. How can a reminder like that help? How can it help us to remember grief and loss? Well, you all understand this. You're Texans. Remember the Alamo. Was the Alamo a great victory? No, it was a stunning defeat. Not one Texas soldier survived. It was a great victory for the opposing army. And yet it became a rallying cry for the Texan army. It became something that they rallied around knowing that they never wanted to experience that again. Knowing that they wanted to set things right. That they wanted to change the course of history. And that's what grief can do for us. When we remember it, 
we are motivated to move forward, to follow the Lord, to put to death sin in our life. When we remember grief we've experienced because of our sin and shame, we never want to experience it again. And there is perhaps no stronger urging to fight sin than that. It is right and good for us to remember and grieve over our sin. Sadness carries with it a power. When we grieve over our sin, we are driven from it. It is good even to have a reminder of our sin, a personal Gilboa, if you will, to keep us faithful in following the Lord. But grief is not just a time to remember the negative. No, a fundamental part of grief is the loss of what is good. And so grief is a reminder of what we have lost and an appreciation for what we have had. Isn't this what makes anniversaries of grief so hard? The famous Presbyterian theologian from Princeton Seminary, Charles Hodge, was perhaps one of the brightest theologians that America's ever produced. His systematic theology is still a standard centuries later. He was married for 27 years to his wife. And his wife died on December 25th, 1849. Could you imagine having a remembrance of that every single Christmas. Hodge wrote to his brother that there was not a day that went by that he did not weep. That he could go on with life, but the grief was there all the time. Many of you experience the same thing when you come upon birthdays or anniversaries or holidays. What makes them so hard is remembering loved ones who are lost. David shows this in his lament. He remembers the former successes of Saul and Jonathan in battle in verse 22. He says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. He's only speaking of the victories of Saul and Jonathan. He's speaking of them at their height of their power. He's remembering them as he wishes to. And then he speaks in verse 23 of their mutual faithfulness to each other and as leaders of Israel. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. I think that David can speak this way of Saul because the character of Jonathan merges into Saul. The respect that he has. But then in verse 24, he reminds himself of the blessings of Saul's reign. He says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, Saul was not a fashion designer. He was not a clothier. What David is referring to here is that Saul had brought such stability and wealth and a strong economy to Israel, something Israel had not known for decades, that women were able to get expensive clothing and gold. Saul had brought good things 
to Israel. Now notice that David is magnanimous here. Most obviously with Saul, he's only speaking good of him. But also of Jonathan. Jonathan's character was high, but Jonathan was a man who was faithful in a calling that went unrewarded, that was seen as hopeless. It's not exactly climbing the corporate ladder to say that you will give your throne to another man. Does your grief bring out the best thoughts in you? Does it cause you to remember the best of those you have lost? That is a blessing of grief. Grief is hard. And grief gives us an opportunity to remember. But thirdly and finally, grief is a way we show our love. This is the real power of grief. After all, we don't grieve over the loss of something that has no meaning for us. Grief comes in the wake of loss. And loss reveals our love. Think about an annoying thing that someone in your family does. I guarantee you that you will miss that when they move away and you don't experience it. Why? Did your opinion of that action or that way of speaking change? No. But your love is so strong that you miss everything that's lost. That is what we see here in the climax of David's lament in verse 26. David says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David has shown that grief motivates and that it causes us to remember. But now the most important aspect of grief is seen in what David has lost. That's really the heart of grief. Someone or something that we love has been taken. The loss of Jonathan was more to David than all of the rest, which honestly was a great deal itself. I am in distress, David says. The word means that he is wrapped up, constricted. We might, in a more free translation, say, David is saying, I'm unable to breathe now because of my grief. Why? Because you were a delight to me, Jonathan. You were most dear to me. Your love was beyond that of a woman to me. Now, what does David mean here? I can tell you categorically that not what some moderns would like him to mean. David is not making any expression of romantic love toward Jonathan. David lived in a day in which that would have been an abomination. It would have been a cause for a death sentence. And there is nothing that makes us seeing that either David or Jonathan were anything other than committed to their wives and fathers of children. And so some seek to twist the text here to make it more palatable to a modern audience. Put that thought far from your mind. 
What I think David is referring to here is Jonathan's faithfulness. David was married. He was married to Saul's daughter. But she wasn't exactly the most faithful wife. David would add other wives. And none of them were as faithful to him, as committed to him, as Jonathan was. Jonathan was willing, even eager, for David to be the king. Jonathan's statement is extraordinary. He says, you will be the king and I will be second. There is no friend greater than that. That's why David's distress is so great. Are you committed to others such that you are not only willing but eager to be second so that they can be first? That you delight in seeing them being blessed even if it means you're not. That's the kind of committed friend Jonathan was. David's distress is so great because of his love for Jonathan. Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, sorrow is hardest where love is deepest. And the great Puritan Matthew Henry puts it this way. The more we love the more we grieve. When you grieve over loss, it shows your love. I can only imagine what it's like to lose someone that close. In God's providence, I have not experienced the death of a spouse or of a child or even a parent. I've experienced the loss of a grandparent, and while that is significant, it's nothing like the grief that comes that breaks up a marriage by death, or takes a child at an untimely time from parents, or that causes the pain to a child of losing a parent. So what does that mean? What it means is that I and you must start preparing for loss. That means appreciating those that you love. Telling them you love them. Being patient with them. Enjoying every moment with them. We know death and loss is a part of this world. We know it better than anyone else as believers. There is no use in pretending that we are all immortal. But if we prepare for the inevitable, how can we endure the sorrow that is to come? If you love deeply, how can you bear the loss? Can we ever be ready or prepared for grief? The solution for loss is love. A love that is distinct from our love for others. The love that I am talking about is the love of Jesus Christ for his people. Of all people in the world, Christians are most prepared for grief and loss. Why? Because we have the empty tomb. We know this world is not the end. We know that Jesus has made a way beyond sorrow and death. We know that Jesus has promised to wipe away every tear and dry every eye. 
Again, Davis puts it so well. He says, Jesus has built a floor in the bottomless pit of our grief. Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your grief. He is described in the Bible as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There is nothing you can do in this world to avoid grief. Nothing that you can do to protect your loved ones from grief. But there is hope. There is a solution. It is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that he has conquered death, sin, and shame. Love has found a way. And that way was found through death. Jesus died so that you might have eternal life. So that you might have a certain hope. So that you might never grieve again. Will you go to him now? He stands ready to strengthen you. In conclusion, grief is hard to talk about. And it's even harder to experience. It stays with us even when we don't express it out loud. But grief reminds us that we were made for relationships. Made for love. And even more, grief shows us that this world is not our home. We were not meant to experience pain and loss, sin and death. Those things are invaders into God's world. And Jesus has come to set things right. Both cosmically and personally for you. You can endure the sorrow of grief if you are upheld by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is your hope. And if you believe in Jesus, nothing can separate you from that hope. Not even death itself. So for now, it's okay to grieve. You can be sad because joy is coming in the morning. Let's pray.